Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining Jews and others in Nebraska to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in Omaha, and I'm joined with my co-host, Liz Feldstrom in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you today? Doing well, thanks. Great. Um, we have a lot to talk about, but I want to jump to one of our subtopics that we really haven't touched on lately, and that's Jewish identity and our own personal connections to Israel. Can I just ask a simple question? What is it that really connects you, and why did you find your way to Israel? You know, we've been talking about this a lot lately, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I've been trying to decide whether there is some parallel to be drawn between the experience of being in Israel and the experience of being at a Husker game. <laughs> but you're going to have to, <laughs> you're going to have to help me out a little bit because though I spent five years in Omaha, sadly, I did not ever make it to a Husker game. I believe you have. Is that correct? I think I've been to three. Okay. So, you know, coming to Israel and I'm speaking as someone who wasn't born in Israel there is, in some sense, a, a feeling of connection to all of the people around you, despite the fact that we're certainly not all the same, right? When, when one comes to Israel, it can't be said that it's a, a feeling of everybody being the same or everybody being Jewish in the same way. But there's still something hard to describe, but nevertheless there, that connects people. And I wonder if, you know, at a Husker game where you're surrounded by people from, from all different walks of life, um, but who share this common uh, sensibility idea about what life, you know, could be like in an ideal world, obviously, where the Huskers will always be victorious. You know, is is there something akin to that? What do you think? Having, you know, been to the Huskers games and obviously spent lots of time here in Israel, is it similar? Is it totally different? And what's different about it? Well, you're making me think about all sorts of different things. Um, one, uh, one story I'm going to share with you that just hit me when you said, you know, Nebraska football. I had what's called a letter jacket. It's a leather yeah. jacket. It's two-tone white and, and red just a really nice jacket that I must have gotten for a birthday when I was probably 14 or 15. And it's red, and on the back of it, it says Nebraska. My wife, Amy, and I were walking through Machnehuda one Friday afternoon, and somebody comes running after us and says, are you really from Nebraska? And when we turned around, it was somebody who I grew up with. Hmm. And it was just, you know, that some of you, I didn't know who's living in Israel at the time. It was just that thing of having an identifier of a jacket with the word Nebraska on it drew attention from uh, somebody in the, in, in the masses of people. I would connect Machnehuda to that of uh, a Husker game because <laughs> there's no room except for where you are at that moment. And yet your, your purpose is, uh, is the same, except... The purpose of Machnehuda is to get your food for Shabbat of the week, and um, going to a Nebraska football game is uh, about supporting 
a, a sport that some people have challenges with, but it, it's an identifier for uh, an individual coming from Nebraska. But I also remember trying to always find an opportunity to see a football game. Somebody someplace would be lucky enough to have a broadcast of a football game and try to find a, a way to do that. So there's an identifier there. But I think what you're talking about is, I don't want to use the word an allegiance, but it's that connectiveness to something. Uh, and I, I think that's true about how I look at Israel, that I've been very connected to Israel. It's so much a part of my identity, as is my roots in Nebraska. So with this idea of identity and how Israel forms, you know, such an important part of your identity as it does for mine as well. I think that, you know, some of that can come through um, in the stories of moments like this story of you with the letter jacket, where things happen that just stick out in your mind as well. Like only in Israel, this is a story that doesn't translate to any other place. I am. And that that helps, you know, tell the story of identity and, and what makes Israel special or why, you know, why we feel something different about Israel than elsewhere. I, I know you have a few stories like that. I have a couple. Do you want to share one? No. Uh, why don't you go first and then I'll jump in after that. Uh, all right. So I'll, I'll, I'll share one, which maybe doesn't necessarily show Israel in the most flattering light, but it speaks to how um, casually, I guess, people relate to each other, how there are very few, um, uh, what's the word, when people don't know how to keep their mouth shut. Uh, uh, there, people are very straightforward with what it is that they want to say. So when I was first moved to Israel when I made Aliyah. I had also just gotten married. And so when I went to the Ministry of the Interior to get my Israeli identity documents, I was gathering those documents. And at the same time, I was officially changing my last name from my maiden name to my married name. And I didn't speak all that much Hebrew at the time. And I handed over my paperwork and the woman in this ministry office looked at my papers and then she looked at me and she said, I'll say in English for, for everyone's understanding. She said, well, wait, wait a minute here. Your last name is Klein and you want to change it to Flidishterin? <laughs> like, like maybe she would convince me that this was a bad idea. And I would say, hmm, okay, lady, you're right. I won't change my last name. And I just, I didn't even know what to say to her. I, Yonatan, my husband, you know, was with me. And I just looked at him like, I, I don't know what to say to this woman who doesn't think I should change my name. Uh, and that was a pretty Israeli moment of, you know, there were no professional barriers where she thought perhaps it was not her place to share what she thought my last name ought to be uh, as a new Israeli. So that that's one, I think, example of a real Israeli moment. I, I, I appreciate that a lot. It reminds me of when I was on kibbutz and I had to share my name to the secretary who was recording everybody's name. And I said, my name is Potash. And he says, okay, putch, 
we'll put down Twitch. Pavav Tetchin, you know, and he says, that's what your name is. I said, no, it's Potash. This is, well, when we spell it, it's Putch. So we all change things. I want to share one story that um, I, I is very touching for me. And it's one that I have shared a lot. I had just moved to Jerusalem from Kibbutz and I was living on uh, in an area east Talpiot, Talpiot Mizrach, actually not far from where you and your family are now across the valley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I was leaving one morning to go to work in downtown Jerusalem and I'm getting ready to cross the street. And all of a sudden this little hand is inside my hand. And I look down, it's a little boy and he's maybe four or five years old. And he says, in Hebrew, can I please hold your hand as we cross the street? Uh, and I said, absolutely. And we crossed the street. And I we we're now at the same bus stop waiting for the bus. And I asked him, I said, why did you have to hold my hand? He says, I can't cross the street by myself. So I'm like, okay, anytime. We get on the bus together. It's a city bus. It's not a school bus. It's a regular Egged bus going from one part of town to the other. He, you know, pays his fare, gets on the bus. Just so happens that we get off at the same spot. Now we've traveled from East Talpiot all the way to uh, outside of Ben Yehuda Street in downtown Jerusalem. And he gets off and he goes to school. What surprised me was here's this little boy, four or five years old, not allowed to cross the street without holding somebody's hand, a stranger's hand, but he can hop on a bus and go all the way through town to go to school. And when I shared that story uh, to somebody, they said, well, yeah, the bus is an extension of the family. And no matter what takes place on a bus, somebody is going to take care of the situation, whether it's somebody who is uh, having a baby or has an injury, somebody's going to help. And whether it's a little kid, somebody's going to make sure that that little kid, that little boy, is going to be safe getting from home to school. Um, it's a, it's a, it was really moving. Mm-hmm. Still is moving to yeah. me today because that's you know in America we would never let you know. Can you imagine a four or five year old uh, in Manhattan getting on a bus by himself going into Brooklyn or Brooklyn to Manhattan uh, by himself on a bus? Yeah, it's definitely a different level feeling of safety. And there's something to that concept of the bus being an extension of the family and and public spaces in general being an extension of the family. You know, people have a certain level of trust and assumption that, yes, if a young person has some issue or even if they don't think they have an issue, Another person who sees them doing something that they don't think is safe or isn't wise will let them know. Yeah, yeah, that happens, you know, all the time. I mean, people are not shy about uh, chiming in to educate young people that they think, you know, maybe need a little bit of a, hey, kid, you know, we don't put our shoes on the seats on the bus or you shouldn't be doing that or you know, yeah. why haven't you stood up to let this older person have a seat on the bus? Come on, kid, up you go. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. I, I have one other quick one that just, you know, you're going to make me think of a lot of different unique stories. But I, I remember going from Machnehuda, the market, uh, on a Friday afternoon with my bags and haggling with the taxi driver, really 
getting mad at each other over a simple fare where I wanted him to use the meter. He didn't want to use the meter. It was Friday afternoon and he, you know, he wanted to get home to his family. And we're just arguing over this, you know, probably an $8 fare the whole way to my apartment. Um, and I get out of the taxi and he says, Shabbat Shalom. So <clears throat> even though we're arguing, we still have the level of respect of what Shabbat means for each other. Who? You just got me emotional, Liz. That's not fair. Sorry, Alan. <laughs> I'll I'll tell a lighter one. <laughs> <laughs> that one wasn't even very heavy. I'll share one. I'm not sure quite how Israeli this story is, although it does speak to Israel and Jerusalem being a small world, and it has a an Omaha connection. When I was getting ready to first move to Omaha, we had a garage sale of sorts. In Jerusalem, it's apartment living. We don't actually have garages. So I guess it was somewhere between a garage sale and an estate sale. I don't know what we had. Um, but there were quite a lot of people in our apartment milling around as all of our worldly possessions were for sale. And out of the corner of my eye, I had seen that Yonatan was talking to some man. I didn't think much of it. I was busy talking to some other potential customer. And all of a sudden from across the room, I hear a very loud, no shit. And I look <laughs> to see what on earth is the conversation that Yonatan has you know, gotten into that this is happening. Well, it turns out that that exclamation of surprise had come from none other than Dan Bleicher, oh. who happened to have shown up at our estate sale and in conversation with Yonatan said, my goodness, you're selling all of your belongings. Where are you moving? And Yonatan said, well, we're going to this place. Nobody's ever heard of it. We're going to Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> and that, that was what elicited Dan's response. So that was, that was a small world story. Um, well, we need to, a funny one. We need to give Dan a, a call and see if he'll join us on our podcast to see if he remembers the story the same way. We should definitely have him. I don't know if he remembers the story the same way, but uh, but it was oh. exciting for us. It made us yeah. feel like we were going to some place that perhaps people had really heard of because we, you know, didn't know too much about Omaha before we went. There, there are so many great connections to why, whether you're from Nebraska or from wherever, you make your way to Israel. So mm -hmm. I'm going to be forward with you. What was it that first attracted you to Israel? You know, if I try to think back to, well, I'll say two things. What first attracted me to Israel, I think, was just, uh, I thought it was someplace very exotic. I, I didn't actually know anything about Israel. I had never been to Israel. I'm not sure I knew too many people had, who had been to Israel even. Um, and I sort of thought that it was a place filled with camels and sand dunes. And so what first attracted me to Israel was that's what I thought I was signing up for. And I came on a program to Israel for nine months at the age of 18, having never been here and thinking that I was coming to ride camels. I was quite surprised when I... <laughs> arrived that that was not even on the agenda but okay but 
then getting to know Israel, uh, what first made me want to think about living in Israel was that at the time, and I'm not sure to what extent I still feel this today, um, I guess I do, but in a slightly different way. At the time, I felt like there were limits to how Jewish I could be in the United States and still feel like a part of the broader culture. To me, it felt like if I wanted to keep kosher in a certain way, I would always feel left out, you know, in the workplace or in other, you know, broader non-sectarian settings. And I felt like if I wanted to keep Shabbat in a certain way, you know, I wouldn't be able to participate in things that other people were doing on Friday nights and Saturdays. And I, I didn't want to have to compromise one set of values in order to be part of the larger. Now, from my older, wizened age now, I can say that we're always making choices, right? There is no place you can live where you feel like you can want to live a a very particular lifestyle and still always feel 100% welcome and represented and seen in every place that you're going to go. Um, but there was something about not wanting to have to explain myself all of the time or feel like I, there, were, there, wasn't, there wasn't the word code switching back then. It didn't exist. But, but that idea of feeling like you could only be certain parts of yourself in certain settings, to me, that was what made me really think about wanting to, to live in Israel when I came the first time around. That's really nice. I am. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, one sees things as very black and white when you're a youngin. I was 22 when I moved to Israel, so <laughs> I was pretty young. But you made it through the nine months. I made it through the first nine months. I made it through the first nine years before coming to Omaha. Yeah. And uh, and five there and now back here for free. So and great things to say about both places. Well, I agree with you on, on that. The the great things to say about both places. It's hard to live in two different worlds. Um, much easier now than it used to be. Um, but for me, my uh, my connection to Israel goes back to um, Bethel Synagogue and uh Hebrew school or Talmud Torah, as we used to call it, where it must have been shortly after the uh, Six Day War, there was a black and white movie of, uh, I would guess now it would be considered a propaganda movie. It was telling the story of rebuilding the, the country of Israel. It's beautiful. It's just, you know, one of those classic black and white movies where people are, you know, tilling the soil and building buildings and really doing everything during the day. And then at night they, they'd sing and dance and eat around a campfire. All the great things. So, you know, that was kind of one of my markers of, wow, this place is really cool. And then I remember um, when the Yom Kippur war took place uh, in 73, again, skipping, um, 
services and going out into somebody's car and listening to the radio and getting uh, news reports of what was going on in Israel, where at that point it was like, uh, this is a place I need to go. I need to go and be uh, supportive of my cousins in, in Israel. Now, mm-hmm. granted, I was 13 years old at the time, so I couldn't just get up and, and go, but it had always been, again, uh, a symbol for me to connect to Israel. And then uh, in high school, going on a first uh, trip, summer trip, and then knowing that Israel was a place I needed to spend most of my time. But it was a little bit of what you said about having to make those decisions about keeping kosher or observing Shabbat. I was always kind of an outsider uh, or wanting to keep kosher uh, to the best of my ability uh, in America meant being a vegetarian, you know, to stay away from the products being made that were questionable. And then wanting to observe Shabbat uh, in a way. So again, it was always living in two different worlds and then going to Israel, moving to Israel, and really being a part of a society where I didn't need to think twice about all those pieces. And it became much easier to live a Jewish life in Israel than a Jewish life in America. Mm-hmm. With Although with its own complexities, right? We trade one set of having to think and define and choose for, for a different type of Thinking yeah, and defining yeah. and choosing, yeah. Yeah, I, we, we can touch on those other things, we, <laughs> other decisions we had to make in Israel versus the, the simple things of, of being Jewish in America versus being Jewish and part of a society uh, in Israel. I mean, we have many, I have many stories, I'm sure you do, of the challenges of day-to-day living in Israel. You know, I did it mostly as a single person, and it wasn't until getting married to have to have those greater conversations about what it's like to have uh, enough money to pay rent and to have food and to be able to think about traveling back to the States to see family once a year or two. So lots of challenges. But I would I would conclude by saying that once I made it to Israel, I felt much more uh, connected to Jewish identity, knowing that I could be anonymous as a Jewish person in Israel. I didn't have a I basically didn't have to prove myself as somebody different uh, as I did when I lived in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am, as we've sort of come full circle on this idea of Jewish identity and the stories that, uh, you know, resonate with us as particularly Israeli, we're going to have time, I think, in, in the weeks to come to hear from some other people about how they view their Jewish identities. And I think that will be a really interesting and and fruitful conversation. I'll close us out maybe for now, just with one Corona era story that also shows how small of a world Israel is and how weirdly and uniquely connected people are. Uh, We had a neighbor for many years here in Israel named Mira. She lived in the same building as we did. And we weren't aware of this story. But one day, Mira went shopping and she came home in a taxi with quite a lot of groceries. She wasn't a young woman already by then. And as she was struggling out of the taxi with all of these groceries, a couple of guys were walking by and they saw that she had a lot of bags. And they said, here, come, we'll help you. And they carried her bags 
upstairs to her apartment with her and got to chatting on the way. They put the things in the apartment and we're about to leave. And she said, no, I can't let you go. You know, you've been so helpful to me. Come sit down. I'll make you coffee. Mira was a great talker. It was not easy to extract oneself from a conversation with Mira. And so, you know, three or four hours later, uh, they'd had coffee, they'd had cookies, they're sitting and chatting. And Mira's uh, grown son stopped by because he needed to pick something up. He was not particularly surprised to find strangers having coffee and cookies in his mother's apartment. He got what he needed and he left. I flash forward, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so. And Mira passed away. And it was during COVID. And her family wanted to have a place to sit Shiva that would be outdoors. And they didn't have an apartment that had a large outdoor area, as many Israelis uh, do not have, Jerusalemites in particular. And so I didn't know this, but I guess it's not uncommon to rent someone else's yard to have a Shiva in. And so they were looking for places to have a Shiva. And Mira's son went to see one place that was available for the week that they needed. And he gets to talking with the guy about the price and which spaces they're allowed to use and what they can. And he said to the guy, gosh, you look really familiar to me. And after they talked back and forth for a while, they realized that lo and behold, they had met once before in Mira's apartment. The owner of this garden was the same guy that had helped her carry the groceries up. Uh, so of course they, you know, struck a deal and there was a connection. They were very happy to rent the garden out for this Corona Shiva. Um, and it's the kind of story that seems, you know, like such a coincidence kind of thing, but it's also the kind of story that happens all the time in Israel. You know, I mean, you hear stories like this, people are just connected in weird ways, how, you know, we come in and out of each other's lives in ways that you wouldn't expect. Um, and so I like that one that, uh, you know, Mir, you know, she she got to have a, a real connection with the person who one day her family would be able to borrow their garden to to remember her in. Wow. That is a, a great story and a great way to end our conversation today on identity. So I want to thank you, Liz. I want to thank everybody for listening to Israel Rebound, a podcast connecting Jews from Nebraska to Israel and every place in between. Thank Thanks you, Liz. Thanks,